The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. Wall Street rebounds, breaking a three-day losing streak as investors set aside Omicron concerns, with airlines and energy companies leading the charge. Another volatile 24 hours for Turkey's lira, but the currency holds onto gains as the president outlines plans to safeguard against price swings. Very good morning, everybody. U.S. President Joe Biden unveiling his strategy for tackling the Omicron variant and calling on Americans to do just one thing this Christmas. Let me say again and again and again and again, please get vaccinated. It's the only responsible thing to do. Meanwhile, Sweden, Portugal and Germany bring back some restrictions amid the Omicron surge as the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says it can't be ignored. I can understand anyone who doesn't want to hear about the coronavirus mutations and new virus variants, but we cannot and must not turn a blind eye to this next wave. So a very warm welcome this morning, everybody. A couple of data points that we're watching out for today. In fact, um, three big pieces of information I think the markets will be focused on. One is a reconfirmation of the uh, third quarter GDP data for the UK. The same thing for the United States. And of course, we also get a look at uh, US consumer confidence numbers later on in the day. And all of this, I think, quite interesting as we continue to try to build a picture of how robust sentiment is, investors sentiment that is coming into the end of the year and the early part of 2022. And I can tell you the uh, the, the third look at the third quarter GDP number in the UK, um, perhaps a little disappointing. Uh, we are plus 1.1% quarter on quarter. The Reuters expectation was that we would get a reconfirmation of the plus 1.3% here. So this is um, a little light on the expectation. The UK final uh, third quarter GDP on a year-on-year basis coming in at 6.8%. The expectation on the year-on-year number was 6.6%. The uh, third quarter current account balance coming in at a a negative uh, 24.4 billion sterling. The Reuters poll expectation was for a negative 15.6% billion sterling. So if you like, that also gives you a sense of um, how uh, poorly the UK is actually doing in matching uh, imports and exports. The uh, current account balance then a huge uh, negative 24.4 billion sterling. Um, Just another piece of information ultimately uh, for investors here in the UK as they contemplate the uh, slightly better than expected performance, I think, out of the FTSE yesterday, where we retook uh, much of the losses that we saw on the Monday. Uh, but Karen, with this Omicron variant, I'm seeing so many uh, confusing 
uh, strands in the economic debate about what happens next. Carl Weinberger, old friend over at High Frequency Economics, talking about the possibility of a flash recession for the end of this year and into early 2022. And I think yesterday we spent a lot of the programme talking about how Goldman Sachs is already taking the scalpel, if you like, to uh, US GDP growth expectations next year. Jeff, you can see in those numbers today, I mean, business investment, the quarter went down while it's up for the year and tells you the trend, how businesses were feeling about plowing money back into investments. And that was stronger, but just not in the quarter. So as we look to close out this year, you can see the uh, this side that is the corporates pulling back on that investment, although well, there's a lot of heavy lifting from the consumers. As we know, those consumers can change their behaviours overnight, which is what we're seeing around the Omicron variant as people rein in some of their behaviours and make concerns about the spread of the variant. So just worth noting the heavy lifting by consumers here, not businesses in the court, and perhaps that's a telling sign. I want to take you to the market action. Or We had another bounce state side, particularly for those big tech names, 2.4% bounce for the Nasdaq. Very strong outing taking place there. And you could see for the S&P, the Dow also rallying and small caps often indication too of risk appetite. We saw a very strong rally there, almost 3% to the upside, a best day since the 20th of July. So telling you just how strong some of the sentiment was. But again, very choppy market action. We have risk on days where you see very strong moves to the upside, risk off where markets move very swiftly to the downside. So it does still feel like we have this very choppy action around central bank policy and Omicron. I want to take you to the banks. This is one area of the market we'd noted a little bit of activity a day earlier and that continued in session yesterday. Goldman Sachs is still one of the best performers, 2.3% to the upside and Bank of America keeping pace as well. Uh, look at Treasuries. Let's just delve into that because we have seen uh, the repricing on the yield curve of late and that flattening has been something the market has closely watched. That 10-year, 1.46, we're not moving too aggressively at this point, as you can see. And one of the concerns has been that longer-term picture now and what the yield curve is telling us about a slightly slower growth profile. That's been one of the concerning factors. I want to take you to oil prices. We've seen a lot of action in this trade over the course of the month and even this week amid the variant concerns that it will impact demand. But just worth noting that over the course of the month, WTI is up about 7.5% on pace for its third positive month in a row. So very strong indications over the month, but of course, a very rocky trading week. We've had a couple of days of a bounce back trade, 71, 21, 22, where it's taken us. Don't forget, we were below that 69 handle. Brent is at uh, very close to that 74 level. So we've also marched higher there as well, despite a slight uh, red arrow on the charts. I want to take you to the wholesale prices and the, the Dutch gas price, one we're taking a look at this morning. We've seen record levels of concerns clearly as we uh, approach these colder months. And I can tell you temperatures have certainly moved south here in London at the moment. So typically when you get a cold snap, you also get more pressure on wholesale gas pricing. We've spiked 22%, as you can see at this stage, 848% higher year to date. Asian markets. Uh, this is how we are uh, moving across the board. You can see uh, mostly positive, the exception here really the Chinese markets just showing a little bit of sogginess. One of the concerns as we talk about Omicron is the impact on supply chains, whether we're going to see any constraints uh, to uh, try and weave our way through the, the latest twists and turns in this pandemic. And we've seen out of the Chinese market all along the zero tolerance approach. And that means that if we've got a very infectious uh, variant now, whether we will see an impact across some of these big 
supply chains. But you can see it's a, a very cautious day of trade, really, to the upside and downside for these markets. European futures, uh, this is how we are perched. We are chasing modest upside, four tenths up on the DAX. That's the strongest indication so far on the chart. I want to push on to the Turkish lira, which is staging a dramatic comeback after President Recep Tayyip Erdogan announced a rescue plan to encourage Turks to put their money back into the embattled currency. In a televised speech late Monday, Mr Erdogan said the government would guarantee returns on lira deposits at a rate similar to those on foreign currency. The lira hit an all-time low of 1836 against the dollar on Monday. And you can see where we're travelling today, 1257 uh, roughly on the boards. Meanwhile, Murad Zaman has been appointed Turkey's uh, deputy finance minister earlier this month. Erdogan appointed Nuruddin Nabati as finance minister after his predecessor asked to be released from his duties. Let's get to a longtime Turkey follower, Michael Harris, founder of Cribstone Strategic Macro. Michael, thank you very much for joining us today. We have seen yeah. uh, various moves from Erdogan, some that uh, suggest complete defiance against market forces. And uh, we've also seen a market reaction, not confident if there are going to be further interest rate cuts. How would you sum up the situation in Turkey? Well, the, what, what, the initial point was very much against market forces. These latest actions are effectively throwing a carrot to try and incentivize uh, the Turkish lira depositors, which were in a panic. And that's why the, that's effectively what was happening. You were seeing a capitulation of Turkish lira depositors switching into foreign exchange. And the new policy throwing incentives at them to basically say you're not going to do worse than the FX uh, loss. You're, you're always it's the FX equivalent if the Turkish lira depreciates is going to keep Turkish lira deposit holders in Turkish lira. They were already there and now they've been given a guarantee. So those those people are probably secured. And so it was a good crisis mitigation measure. Absolutely an unnecessary crisis. It was totally self-inflicted. Uh, we're much worse off than where we started. And now, though, Turkey, unfortunately, looks a little more like a Nigeria or a Lebanon in terms of the sustainability of the situation and the need for government intervention to make sure this works. This is going to be incredibly complicated to make sure we don't have huge, huge imbalances. Effectively, it's like the U.S. housing crisis. Uh, the Turkish story now will only really work if the Turkish lira behaves. If it does, it becomes a little bit virtuous and it could be quite okay cyclically. But whenever the Turkish lira weakens, and we know that's absolutely going to happen at some stage, then the spiral becomes quite vicious because the liabilities of the state rise. And then again, you get into a situation where confidence be retained in the lira. So this is a super, super costly measure. Erdogan is throwing everything at it, largely to stabilize the situation, I would say, on his 18-month political view rather than thinking what's the best outcome for the country. Michael Erdogan could have helped stabilise the market by committing to no further interest rate cuts. I mean, we saw some hope in the markets that that would be the situation and then that lira trade calmed down. But then obviously that was reversed when Erdogan suggested, well, we, we may get more cuts. What do you think the likely course is here? Do you think we will see the central bank slice interest rates further? Well, I would be surprised because they've seen the pain and it's, he's already cut them enough. Real rates in Turkey are crazy low, 14% official policy rate. Everyone knows even with the stabilization, inflation is going to be 35%, 30%, The minimum wage increase, if Erdogan was serious here, he wouldn't have announced a 50% minimum wage increase. And usually in most countries, minimum wages aren't crazy inflationary because they 
are on average, let's say 30 or 40% of wages. In Turkey, the minimum wage is literally 80% of the average wage. So Erdogan effectively dictates a national wage policy. So wages in January are going up 40 to 50% across the board. So this is the, and if, if they're lending at the current rate of 14%, so you can borrow in the teens somewhere, upper teens, you're in, a, you're in a situation where rates are extremely no, low in, in, in real terms. So he doesn't need to cut anymore. And, and I, would, I would just counter one thing you said. It wasn't about the central bank committing not to cut anymore. The rate was mispriced. Every Turk in the country knew that the rate they were getting in the bank account was nowhere near inflation. So that was, that's what was causing the panic. For Erdogan to have won this via market forces, he would have had to capitulate on rates. And because he owns this low rate mentality so aggressively, it's no longer his son-in-law who he fired or a central bank governor after central bank governor who he fired. This was Erdogan explicitly saying, this is my policy. So he, he had too much pride and he was unwilling to back down. So this is the cost of having one person running a country with basically no one else having any uh, checks and balances on him. And when that person goes a little off piece, the whole country goes off piste. Morning, Michael, which is interesting. I, I think, um, as you point out, Erdogan owns the low interest rate story, which then raises a, a question that I know has been expressed by other economists, that what Erdogan was attempting to do was to try and effectively deliver something that looked like an interest rate hike through the back door, stabilising the currency, thereby uh, providing at least some ammunition to fight inflationary pressure. Um, but you don't buy into that argument, I don't think. That's, that's a total misreading. I think an interest rate hike is all about the, the, what it does for economic activity. This was an interest rate hike only for depositors, only. It's to keep money in Turkish lira. But they actually still have a very low interest rate. Now, if they go through and somehow raise the rate and don't allow credit to be issued at these sorts of levels. But the irony is stabilization is going to allow Erdogan to actually lend at the low rates that he was promising. So this is more dangerous because before the market wasn't going to let him lend because they didn't believe it. If we do get stabilization of the lira because of these huge carrots being thrown at Turkish lira depositors, and by the way, foreigners are not in the market. So foreigners were not the driving force here at all. It's not about um, uh, stopping foreign panic. It was about stopping domestic panic. So he stopped domestic panic because domestic deposit holders will now be um, protected against the devaluation, but foreigners won't. So foreigners are still effectively being offered a 14% policy rate. Uh, so the, this is not going to bring any foreign money into the country. So it's not the interest rate that the foreign investors wanted, but also from a, from a GDP growth perspective, this is incredibly, incredibly dovish if he gets away with this. And so what, and, and ultimately simple message, it's inflationary. So yes, uh, some people are saying, oh, at least we're not having the sheer hyperinflation associated with the currency absolutely melting down. But we already knew it was going to be 30, 35%. Throw on that if we get three or four months of calm and we're going to end up seeing a lot of credit growth and Erdogan is going to have to micromanage to make sure that credit growth doesn't go into crazy consumption because the current account is almost unfinanceable if foreigners don't have an incentive to be in the country. And they don't. They absolutely don't. So, so Turkey is in the first uh, in phase where actually I agree with a lot of people that think about the current account generally and saying Turkey needs to balance the current account. Now it absolutely does because who's going to fund it otherwise? Uh, so, so, but, but we're going to get a window where demand's going to be weak. Exports will come back because Turks are very capable um, exporters and they have a lot of spare capacity. 
uh, and tourism hopefully will be very, very strong. So Erdogan, I think, has a three to seven month window, let's call it, where the current account is going gonna, is gonna to be okay. And that's going to allow him to finance a little bit of recovery. Um, but on balance, I think this is super, super inflationary. And I think this is, uh, at the same time, you're going to have more sudden stops because there's not going to be that laxity where as confidence improves, foreigners come in and help to fund the current account. That, that ain't going to happen this time around. This is, a, this is a very, very short-term policy. Or if he was serious about it, it's actually a recessionary policy is what he needs. But we know that's not what Erdogan's about. This was him. This was a populist solution. It was not an interest rate hike. It was a populist solution. He's giving a gift. He's spending the national wealth in order to give a gift to Turkish lira depositors to keep them uh, in the Turkish lira. And that's huge from a net present value perspective. This is crazy costly for the Turkish economy. The markets and the, and the country may not see it for the next six months, though, because actually the calm is abated. So it was this was a typical central bank throwing the kitchen sink at a problem. It worked, but actually Turkey can't afford the sink they just gave. Michael, since it's um, probably the last time we speak to you this year, maybe we could um, just get a few broader ideas from you about uh, what investors need to focus on from a macro perspective early into next year. I guess the inflation trend is is here to stay for a little while yet. Um, a lot of central banks seem to be reacting with gradually tightening monetary conditions. Does that trend continue? What else do you see as interesting for investors to take note of? Well, I think you know, the interest rate trend, my guess is we're not, everyone says we're worried about a policy mistake. We're worried about a policy mistake. We are not going to get a policy mistake because we're so uber dovish in terms of current policy. I think that idea, that expectation that, that when they say there are going to be a certain number of, of rate hikes, that's by no means on autopilot. They're going to be super, super data sensitive. Uh, and every move takes a little bit away. So, you know, from a market perspective, one thing I think is important is two things drive inflation. Um, associated with QE. One is S&P wealth in the US, and two is housing equity, and that's in the UK and a, and a lot of countries. So they need to take the froth off of these two things without damaging the underlying economy. And I personally think that's maybe possible because the markets are so liquidity dependent. So my, my guess is there are going to be measures, and maybe in some countries there'll be fiscal measures in addition, whether it's capital gains taxes, dividend taxes, or, or something associated with housing, even though, God forbid, the UK would ever have anything resembling a tax on housing. Um, the, the, you know, these, were, the, these are the sectors that are actually, I think, causing the psychology of inflation because people feel in certain segments extremely wealthy. You know, the BOE, I think one of the reasons they went ahead is they wanted to take a tiny bit of froth away of a country that's way, way too dependent upon variable mortgages. Uh, so it was, it was almost a down payment against stagflation, uh, in, in my view, in this country. So I, I wouldn't worry about policy errors absolutely at all. They're going to they're gonna be super, super sensitive to this. What I would worry about, though, are things like the gas price hike that we're seeing and potential for oil price hikes, because you have this dysfunction one, because of what Putin is doing. I mean, it's crazy, you know, um, to, to, to be in a situation where Europe is hostage to a geopolitical situation. And he's, he's absolutely leveraging that to the hill. But there's also the reality of the, the new climate agenda, which doesn't encourage long-term investment at all. So we are going to go through a period where uh, until the transition happens, we're going to be very vulnerable to spike. So I will feel much more comfortable about markets once we get through the cold of February. Uh, because we could see, I think, something destabilizing associated with that. Uh, but on balance, 
I, I, I would I would be thinking about next year is very, very lukewarm. They don't want equities to tank, but at the same time, I don't think they want equities to work. It's counterproductive right. for equities to work for the Fed because that is part of the inflation problem. So they should be managing policy to take froth out of equity markets. And if they don't, I think they're not doing their job. Michael, thank you very much for sharing the ideas with us. And uh, no doubt we'll talk plenty more in 2022. Happy holidays to you, Michael Harris, founder of Cooperstone Strategic Thanks, Macro. Thanks, Michael. Coming up on the show, President Biden issues a chilling warning to the unvaccinated. We'll give you the latest on the US pandemic response after the break. And for more on the challenges facing President Erdogan and the Turkish economy, please check out the Squawk Box podcast. We'll be right back. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. US President Joe Biden says more federal testing and vaccination sites are opening across the country as the Omicron variant becomes the dominant strain in the United States just 20 days after its first detection. The Biden administration also plans to mail 500 million free rapid tests to Americans in the new year. Let's get out to Juliana for more. Juliana, uh, we know the situation on the ground here in the UK is one that's uh, moving very rapidly around the new variant. But what does it look like in the United States and what are the measures to try and counteract the spread? Well, Karen, in the United States, it's looking increasingly like it's looked here, especially in London. You're seeing big cities in the U.S. see queues for testing wrap around the block and wait times lengthen. Um, yesterday, President Biden addressed the nation on the latest uh, COVID situation. Omicron now accounts for three quarters of new COVID infections in the United States. And his message for Americans was that you shouldn't all be concerned, but not panicked, saying that you should get fully vaccinated, get your booster. But this is not March 2020, trying to avert widespread panic. Unlike March 2020, now 200 million Americans have received their vaccination. Um, but he really was speaking to the unvaccinated specifically, saying that if you are not fully vaccinated, you have good reason to be concerned, highlighting that not only he, but also former President Trump has had their booster shot, something that President Trump uh, announced in an interview earlier this week. Um, and he said this is one of the few things that those two have in common. So take a listen to what President Biden had to say in his appeal to the unvaccinated. Your choice can be the difference between life or death. The longer the virus is around, the more likely variants form that may be deadlier than the ones that have come before. Let me say again and again and again and again, please get vaccinated. It's the only responsible thing to do. 
In terms of what President Biden and the administration is doing now, there are three real buckets of action. They're stepping up vaccination and booster efforts, making it easier to get tested and get tested for free. So starting in January, as Karen mentioned, the administration is going to be purchasing 500 million free rapid tests and distributing them to Americans. And then they're going to be mobilizing a thousand troops to help staff around the country, deploy teams to provide additional hospital beds and um, position equipment around the country so that if different areas need additional things like PPE um, and other equipment, they can access it easily. A lot of critics, though, saying that this is coming um, too late, especially when it comes to testing. Why wasn't more done earlier? Why didn't President Biden initiate a program like this with a more and free rapid test, something like we have here in the United Kingdom? Um, Jeff, we'll hand it back over to you. Yeah, Juliana, stay with us. Um, you'll probably want to get involved in our next conversation. Marissa Baker joins us, assistant professor at the University of Washington Department of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences. Uh, Marissa, thank you for joining us. Perhaps I can just start off with that question to you. Are you also concerned that these measures appear to be coming quite late and ultimately they will leave a lot of Americans scrambling to find test kits, to uh, get their hands on masks and to do what they need to do to protect themselves and their families, both in the home and at work. Yes, certainly. I mean, um, the Biden administration has um, largely relied on vaccination as kind of the cornerstone of their pandemic response. And unfortunately, um, while there are, you know, certain numbers of Americans who are choosing not to be vaccinated or get their booster, there are many, many more who really face structural or logistical barriers um, to doing that. And that's often a lot of workers who feel like they can't take the time off or don't want to um, potentially have a reaction and have to miss work and may not have paid sick leave. Um, and the same with testing. Um, if it can be, they are, they can be hard to come by. Um, 500 million for our country is about one and a half tests per individual. And if we are being asked um, to test with the frequency that we should, it's just not going um, to be enough for the long term. Well, can I ask you then, how, how should uh, anybody watching this who is concerned uh, in the States at the moment, how should they be thinking about their plans for the seasonal period? Yes, well, you know, certainly um, vaccination and boosters work um, and it is important to do so. Um, however, there are lots of other things um, that will continue to be important um, for this variant as they have been for previous variants. Um, you know, things like wearing an appropriate mask and that's, you know, one that is well fitting to your face and offers some good um, filtration and protection. Um, another is, give, you know, thinking about the air, that that is how the virus spreads, it is air Born. Um, and so anything that can be done to get the air moving in this space or clean the air, whether it's a HEPA filter, opening windows, um, these are things that are going to be important. And then also continuing to monitor yourself um, for symptoms. Um, and, you know, if you're not feeling great, even if you're not able to take a test, it's probably, um, you know, prudent to um, sit out until you can confirm that you are not um, infectious. 
Marissa, I think there is one country uh, that a lot of people are watching, that is uh, Israel, but they're also watching the United Kingdom. And here, Boris Johnson making the decision to cut the isolation period from 10 days to, to seven with testing from day six and day seven. Do you think there's any merit to that, uh, whether the measure could be rolled out globally at this point? Yeah, you know, I think as we learn more about kind of the um, the time the timeline of the virus, um, you know, what we're seeing with Omicron is because of the much larger viral load, folks, um, you know, tend to get sicker. Uh, you know, they tend to get sick sooner after exposure. And so kind of the whole timeline of the, di the disease might be a little different than we um, have kind of come used to. And so certainly, you know, if... Um, you know, you can test um, and have negative test, uh, you know, a good, reliable negative test. Um, you know, that might be something that um, could be done globally. But, you know, the bottleneck will be making sure that you have that test um, and making sure that people continue to, um, you know, monitor their symptoms and, you know, wear um, a, a well-fitting quality mask um, as they await those test results. Marissa, um, obviously, uh, the division in America uh, when it comes to appetite for vaccines is very well known. And um, I, I wonder when it comes to testing, how that stacks up. Are, are we going to see the same resistance from some Americans toward testing that we've seen with vaccinations? Um, so how far is this new rapid testing sort of campaign really going to go in the U.S.? You know, that's a really great question. Um, and I think that um, a lot of Americans, it maybe isn't the resistance to the vaccine, it's the resistance of being told that they have to do something. Um, and so maybe if we're able to kind of frame the testing as a choice that you can make, um, you know, and kind of the OSHA ETS that we are all um, nervously waiting for and hoping will um, actually happen, um, you know, in that it's you have a choice. You can either get vaccinated for workers or you can take a test each week. Um, you know, and so framing it as a choice may um, sway some folks. Um, however, the other, you know, the other bit I worry about is just access to the tests. And um, that will probably continue to be divided with folks who have the resources to spend the time getting them, using them, um, you know, continuing to have access. And then many other individuals, individuals who are likely at an increased risk for COVID because of where they work, because of where they live, because of other structural barriers, they may still struggle to locate the tests and have them when they need them. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.